Good morning, Christ Central. Welcome for joining us here as well as at home. The title of today's sermon is The Birth of John Fulfilled, and the text, Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 80. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relative is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that he should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, because of the, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear precious God, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner, and those that are here and watching at home? We need your grace because every day we are prone to believe that your silence is a curse, that we are a people who are rejected. But it is through your grace, through your Son, and the declaration that we are a people far more loved than we could ever imagine or hope, that you have granted us, Lord God, your only begotten Son, that we may have hope for all eternity. And so we delight in you, and we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. There are three sections of this passage, and the first section is the purpose of John's name, and the second section, the purpose of the silence. And the third, the priority of the Benedictus. 
the first section, the purpose of John's name. In keeping the traditions of the Israelites, the natural assumption was to name Zechariah after his father. It was unthinkable to every member of the family that the long-awaited first male child would be named anything other than Zechariah. This is a matter of utmost importance to the family. They all came around because they were excited after the eighth day that they would name him Zechariah. What, hap uh, what helped me understand the reaction of the family when um, they were told that it wouldn't be Zechariah is my own Korean heritage. Korean people also have a tradition among male children born to the family. The paternal grandfather has the very important role of choosing a character that will show continuity among all the male heirs of the family. It's chosen after looking at all those who came before them, and there is an official registry in Korea. So for my family, every male child born among the four brothers carry the lineage of the family, so each male child in the family has an identifying character that binds them together. So for my brothers and I, it's Wan. So my older brother's name is Changwon, mine is Jinwon, and my younger brother is Jungwon. J with the character Wan. People would know we are siblings just by looking at our name. We would know that we are tied together to carry on the lineage of our family with dignity and grace, that we are part of something far greater than our individual self. Even my cousins are named Changwon, Kiwon, and Juwon, the other male heirs of the family. But it would be like my dad all of a sudden naming our older brother Changwon and me Jinwon, then out of nowhere naming our youngest brother Eunhae. It would be like, what? Why would you do that? Why departure from tradition? When you depart from tradition, what's natural, there's a story, there's a narrative as to why, a purpose for that name that is far greater than remaining status quo, going with a well-established and good tradition. In the case of the example of my sibling names, a possible scenario in this imaginative illustration could go something like this. When my youngest brother was born, my father became saved and so wanted to give God glory and so he named him Unhe, which means grace in Korean. To break tradition requires a purpose and a narrative that makes sense to do that. So let's engage the story to figure out why the departure from tradition. What narrative would bring faithful Orthodox Israelites to wander and awe before God? in changing a name. Elizabeth, again, being so certain of God's hand in this miracle, continues to demonstrate her faith against expected family tradition of the Israelites, declares against the family assumption and says, no, his name is not going to be Zachariah after his father, but it will be John. The family was so shocked by Elizabeth's radical departure from tradition that they needed to go to the now deaf and mute Zechariah. Even though it was possible that he wouldn't even be able to speak or understand or hear, they signed and gestured and told them something is wrong. Do you know what's happening with your life? She's gone bonkers. She wants to depart from family tradition and name him something that we can't find in any of our family lineage. If you're ever gonna talk, now is the time to bring correction. Talk some sense into her. 
You see, John's arrival wasn't just about the removal of Zechariah and Elizabeth's personal shame, barrenness, but the removal of shame for their whole extended family, a rejoicing that God had finally taken away the curse. But John's name would be far more than just about this family's journey out of shame, so far beyond their scope of possible understanding. John's arrival would be the grand preparation for the arrival of the Messiah that the people have been waiting through all of history, salvation of the entire world. The removal of shame and sin for all of God's people through all of history and time. All the saints who have fallen asleep, live now, and even the saints to come. God was fulfilling his endless mercy and grace not only in the family, but all the families of the world who would place their faith in Christ Jesus. John was the forerunner to the saving grace of God, his eternal mercy. His name was a declaration of a greater work of God than they could imagine. John's names, their names, and the one whom John came to prepare the way for, his name is Jesus, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Their names pointed to a greater truth that they couldn't even understand. Zechariah means God remembers. Elizabeth means God alone is faithful. John means God is merciful. And Jesus means that God saves. Their names all center on the one common truth. It is God alone who remembers. It is God alone who is faithful. It is God alone who is merciful to save. Praise be to God. And so we can summarize the blessings of the names in this one phrase. The faithful God who remembers his promise has shown mercy by saving sinners. How amazing that God has brought all that about. The second point, the purpose of the silence. Did you notice this, that Zechariah remained silent even after the birth of his son John? Wouldn't God have released him from the silence, the result of his unbelief? The promised son had come, and the words of the angel, the promise of God fulfilled despite the doubt. Why not take away the muteness and the deafness of Zechariah? Why did he remain silent? If it was punishment for his doubt, he was proven wrong in John's birth. There was no reason to continue to keep him in the silence. I'm sure John thought about it. I guess this is how I'll remain forever. In order to understand why, we have to understand some context of Israel's history and how God works during times that could be perceived as his silence. When he seems not to be responding to our prayers and desires, the context of Zechariah's silence falls into the 400 years of silence without the word from God. No prophets have spoken on behalf of God since Malachi. Old Testament prophets spoke of a time when God's people would no longer be able to hear the words of God. It says in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. 
The Israelites were in a famine, in the dark, in the silence from God and his prophets who spoke for him. But the last prophet, Malachi, offers great hope. Amongst all the judgments and all the things that the Israelites were doing, there was great message of hope in the coming day of the Lord. Its arrival marked by the coming Elijah. This is the final promise and hope before the 400 years of silence in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the arrival of the Messiah and that day of the Lord is what they've been waiting for. And the sign that they were waiting for is the one who would come to prepare the Messiah. The last prophet in the final words describes the inauguration of these last days that they all longed for because they were dying, going to and fro, waiting for the word of God. But who is this Elijah? Would it be the resurrected Elijah, the actual Elijah, or a figurative Elijah-like prophet, the greatest prophet that would usher in the day of the Lord and the imminent coming of the Messiah that they all waited for? We don't have to wonder. Jesus taught us that the fulfillment of the prophet of old was here, that the long-awaited kingdom of God was finally here. We find it in Matthew chapter 11, and I'll read from verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, And here's the power. He is Elijah, who is to come. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So John was the awaited Elijah, the final prophet prophet before the great day of the Lord when God would send his promised Messiah. For the coming of Jesus marked the beginning of the last days when all things that were broken by the fall would find its undoing. All the sickness that were cured, the reversal of the broken bodies and souls and hearts, all of it pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah who had come and who is here. And the last days that everyone had waited for is now here. The silence was was never meant to be seen as a punishment. It was meant to be seen that God is continuing to be present and he was working. It's easy to view the silence as punishment for disbelief when viewed without the historical redemptive narrative in mind. 
All the prophets who had spoken before, seeing in the shadows, were looking at the coming and the sign of John would be what let them know that the Messiah is imminent. Without this context, it's easy to think in a worldly framework like many of us do. You get what you put into the universe is how most of us live, even as Christians. How hard you work, whatever you put, positivity, throw it out in the world and it will come back to you. And bad behavior will result in rejection and silence. And good behavior will get you blessings. Ask yourself, is that what you believe? Because most of us do. It's hard because most of our human relationships kind of behave this way. Take, for example, marriage. As most husbands have discovered early in their marriage, or even as boyfriends as they were dating, bad and inconsiderate behavior will land you into what feels like 400 years of silent treatment. Most make the mistake of asking after the silent treatment, did I do something? Of course you did! Why do you think your wife goes silent? Because you did something. Only to be followed by, if you don't know, or the infamous, I need some time. And this, I need some time, is usually followed by bone-chilling silence. So most of us naturally associate silence with punishment. You have to ask yourself, is that your framework? If you believe in karma or you will get as much as what you put in worldview, you would place Zachariah becoming deaf and mute after doubting angel Gabriel as a clear punishment for his doubt in plain sight of God's angel and declaration. But you see, God's economy of grace would not follow this type of karma logic. God's silence is not punishment. We associate our suffering with something we did but the greater purpose in our waiting teaches us that there is a great purpose and hope for God's silence. So not one ounce or a millisecond of our suffering is pointless. It is in the will of God. When the Israelites were on their way to Canaan, they rejected God's invitation to enter into the promised land because of disbelief and fear. They entered the wilderness and a time of crying out to God for deliverance, but not to hear an answer for 40 years. What seemed once again like God's silence, but God in this time of silence was preparing a savior in Joshua who would deliver God's people into the promised land. Again, God's silence is not punishment but those he loves, he disciplines. Did you know that Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua or Yeshua, which when used in Koine Greek would be written Yesu, which in English becomes Jesus. So Joshua, which means the Savior, was the name of Jesus in Greek. Most modern Bibles translate Hebrews 4, 8, 10 to identify Jesus as the better Joshua, as Joshua led Israel into the rest of Canaan, but Jesus leads the people of God into God's rest. Among the early church fathers, Joshua is considered a type that pointed to the ultimate Savior of God's people, Jesus Christ. 
So the silence of God in the time of prayer and crying out of God's people for their deliverance and redemption was purposeful in waiting for the provision of God's Messiah for the salvation of all of God's elect. In the silence, the certainty that salvation for God's people isn't found in ourselves and our own solutions. It is solely in God's promise. God hears the people's cry, and it is God who provides a Savior for his people. The Bible repeatedly says God heard the cry of his people and sent a Savior to save them. Through his prophets, his judges, his kings, and ultimately all of them pointing to the greatest prophet, the greatest priest, and the greatest king, Jesus. The silence as we perceive it was not God's inactivity or God turning away from us. He was present and active and heard every cry and saw every tear. So God's provision of Moses, Joshua, Nehemiah, Judges, David, and the prophet, it all pointed to the ultimate Messiah and Savior of the world to come. And these forerunners prepared their heart for his coming. The end of Zechariah's narrative isn't the reception of his long-awaited son, but the hope that God has never forsaken his promises to his people. Zechariah's only son pointed to the true, only begotten son who is the hope for God's people. So silence for today cannot take away hope for believers because it will never be the final word for believers. For the believer, every cry and prayer will find their yes in Christ. For every injustice and for every suffering and loss, the answer is wait for one day soon. God will dry every tear and answer every prayer. And the guarantee is already given to us in the finished work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells in every believer. So beloved church, do not despair The darkness we experience here on earth is but for a short time. But the dawn of light has broken in. John prepared the way for the Messiah who grants us hope. We have and we can have unwavering hope in our Savior. An application for us, for those of you crying out, and longing for the healing of your spouse, child, parents with cancer, dementia, brokenness all around us, do not stop praying in the silence. For he is present in the silence, hears your cries, and is working for the good of all those who love him. Our time with God is to become more certain that he is for us and that he who gave his only begotten son, he alone is trustworthy of our faith and our ultimate hope. No one can ever take away that hope because the work is finished. Death and cancer does not have the final word for us who are found in Christ. And so I want to invite any of you out there today, skeptics and those hurt by the church and those who are downcast by the sufferings and the burdens of today, would you take time today to challenge and reject the worldview that God's silence is punishment or the proof of his non-existence? 
But just like Zechariah, in the silence, it deepens our conviction that he is present in our silence and hears our prayers and that one day soon he will make all things new. In Jesus, all things will one day be redeemed and the silence will give way to the praise of his people. In Jesus, all things will one day be redeemed and the silence of his people will give way to the praise of his people. I invite you to go to God and ask him to break into the darkness of your soul that he could bring light purchased by the death of his son to become your shining, bright hope and assurance for all your pain. And lastly, the priority of the Benedictus, God's blessing. Zachariah's hymn of thanksgiving is called Benedictus, meaning blessed, because this is the song's first word in Latin, but it also summarizes his heart. And likewise, the Benedictus aligns parallel to Mary's Magnificat, both participating in worship and praise for the coming of the promised Messiah. For both these people who were rejected and felt cursed and felt alone in the silence, both songs would be birthed out of a lot of pain for them personally. But instead of crushing them, they came out of the other end full of worship and praise. The Benedictus speaks of God's visitation to man because it is speaking of a nature of the gospel that saves Salvation is not a human invention, but a divine visitation. It is not something that we achieve by going to God, but something that God has done by coming to us in Christ. No one is ever saved except by the grace of God. We have to understand that the Israelites wanted a second exodus, a second Moses who would lead them out of the Roman rule like Moses led them out of Pharaoh's rule. But God was offering a different kind of salvation, forgiveness of sins. When the paralyzed man came to be healed, Jesus offered him forgiveness. Remember that? Before he stood up, before he began to walk, he said, your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because his primary need wasn't the healing of his body, but to have his sin forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Only a God who knows and addresses our greatest need deserves our deepest trust in him. He is the only one who is worthy to be trusted with our daily needs. He took the cup of wrath that we deserve that those who betrayed God as enemies would be made children of God. Phil Riken says this, like the people of Israel, we are usually wrong about what we really need. We tend to look at our circumstances. We want God to save us from things like a bad work situation, a financial setback, or a troubled marriage. Of course it is right for us to pray to help. But the first thing he has to deal with is our sin. There is no social transformation without spiritual regeneration. And so Zechariah entered the silence full of doubt 
and came out of the silence in worship and with the certainty of God's faithful mercy and grace. In the silence, he found his significance and worth in the beautiful, historical, redemptive narrative of God to save his people, that it, he will always keep his promise. His deepest joy and worship arising from the hope that is found in Christ, not the birth of his long-awaited son. It's seen and felt through the forfeit of his right to name him after himself. The eight days of silence long after John's birth and the first words of his mouth to confirm his surrender to the will of God and his promises taking precedence over any of his personal longings and desires. It's all summarized in this blessing that overflows from a heart that waited a long time. On a deeper look, even in the structure of the blessing, we can see the transformation of Zachariah's heart. His ultimate praise isn't for the birth of his long-awaited son, John, but the fulfillment and faithfulness of God to bring hope for the long-awaited Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. The order of this blessing is so important because it indicates the reordering of the affections and longings of Zachariah's heart. If you look, Luke chapter 1, verse 68 through 75, there are eight verses. And if you look just on the picture, you can see that it's twice as long, just in the structure of itself. And this Luke chapter 1, 76 through 79, there's four verses and a blessing, blessing God for his newborn son, John. It is significant that the double number of verses are attributed and that even the order of blessing shows Christ's birth to be primary in his heart. Can you imagine a lifelong waiting for a son that he could have and nurture and in this old age that instead of praising God for his son, he praises God first for the Savior, the only begotten son. But in reality, if you look at the four verses, he speaks tenderly to his son about his role pointing to Christ. So in actuality, all 12 verses point to Christ. If you have been waiting and fasting and crying out for a lifetime for something, if it has consumed your mind and heart daily, and the silence was disappointment or believing that God didn't hear you, that long after you could have children, believing and accepting that it was over, your hope for a child, what would be the first thing that comes from your mouth? Seven years ago, when I arrived here at CCPC, we actually had physical prayer cards instead of the online ones. And one day, Pastor Albert left me a prayer card that I had written long before, in the years before, in my room. So soon after, I had my girl, Madison Hope, and that's the card, that's the actual card, where he put a sticky note saying, God answered your prayer. My first prayer request was newly elected deacons and deaconesses to joyfully serve and gain deep intimacy with Christ, and the second. And I was so scared that I put it second because I wanted to make sure that I prayed for something else before. The quiet cry of my heart for years, a child for my wife and I to love. 
and to raise to love the Lord. And when I saw that card, I was so touched that he held that card and he gave it to me when Madison was born. And as many of you have heard my sermon in the archives longing and rejoicing where I talk about how God helped me understand his heart for his children through my longing for Madison to arrive in Luke chapter 15. After our miscarriage and long two years of fertility treatments, God heard the long-suffering prayers of our heart as this card states, and he gave us the desire of the heart my sermon ended up being my benedictus, though I had silently suffered as I faced loss after loss, disappointment after disappointment. The arrival of my daughter wasn't the end of my journey or the culmination of what God was doing in my heart, but out of the silence and deep groaning before God, for he illuminated within my soul that my deepest longing wasn't the arrival of my daughter Madison, but being brought to understand the faithfulness of God and that he had never stopped listening to my cries, that the long years of silence didn't mean that he wasn't with me, that it didn't mean the absence of his presence. My story does not end with the gift of the daughters. It is the gift of the absolute certain trust in the heart of my God who never forsakes any of his promises to his children. What I gained in that silence is my God and my trust in his soul and his gifts and all that he does, even in the silence. He is the most loving faithful and trustworthy God who fulfills all his promises. So my final application to us today, could I ask you to dig deep? When do you find yourself having your praises flow most easily? When do we love God and when are we most prone to worship when things go well according to the desires of our heart? How many of us would look at Psalm chapter 37, 4, and we claim it, we write it, we tattoo it on our arms, and we say, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Most of us read this text this way. I will go to church, join Bible study, obey, serve God, stop doing bad things so that he can give me what I ultimately long for the salvation of my kids, the healing of my body, or those that I love, the perfect job, the perfect spouse, comfort in retirement? Or is your worship like Zachariah's Benedictus to find ourselves delighting in the Lord first because he loved us first before any of the gifts that follow? That in the silence, we learn to trust and find that our greatest need and our greatest hope is him, not what he provides. That he alone is trustworthy of all that we need. Our God in the silence reorders our affections so that no matter what happens in our life, we find rest in him alone. So let me ask, do you delight in him alone. Let's pray. Dear God, what makes a man who waited all his life 
for something, crying out to you in silence, maybe years and years of doubting of your goodness for the all of Israelite people, that you are not present, that you are not working, that you have abandoned your people, that it is in your visitation that you transform a heart of shame, guilt, doubt to a heart of worship that overflows that the only thing that he is consumed by is your trustworthiness and who you are. So we thank you. We thank you for the work that you do in the silence. And would you continue to move the hearts of your people and reorder 